Today's scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 20. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you. For those of you who are new, my name is Chris, and I serve as the lead pastor here. Everyone enjoy that extra hour of sleep? I know I did. Um, Mindy and I were, were talking this weekend, and, and I kind of startled her when I said, November is like my least favorite month of the year. She's like, why do you not like November? And there's a lot of reasons why, but there are two days that I like. Thanksgiving, obviously, that's a fun day, and daylight when daylight savings time ends. I love that extra hour of sleep. So I don't know about you, but last night was like the best night of the year in some ways for me. <laughs> but it is good to see you all. Uh, let me just add by way of welcome, if, if you're here, you're new, uh, understand that our heart to you is hospitality. We want to meet you right where you are. We want to extend hospitality to you right where you are. So if you are a confident believer in Jesus looking for a church home and you have questions about First City Church and, and what we're about, uh, we would love to, to be able to meet you, answer those questions. So uh, please connect with us. Welcome Table Church Center. Uh, that would be our heart and, and love to, to welcome you further into community. Uh, maybe you're, you're here and you have questions. You're, maybe you're unsure of what you believe. But you're curious and you're, you're interested in connecting to a church community, know that we would love to connect with you as well. We would love to welcome you further into the life of First City Church in any way that we can. And maybe you're here this morning and you wouldn't profess faith at all. Know that our heart is to share the gospel, to share the love of Christ with you, and we would love to welcome you into this community. You're, you're not somebody standing in the corner far away. We want to welcome you in and love you, and share the grace of Christ with you. So wherever you are in your spiritual journey, know that our heart towards you is hospitality, love, grace, want to welcome you further. So if we can do that, please let us know. Uh, If you have not opened your Bibles, uh, please do so. We're going to be in Exodus 20, focusing on verse 13. And the title of my message this morning is Pro-Life with Purpose. So on October 7th, our TV screens and our social media feeds were bombarded, inundated with the horrific news of the terrorist attack in Israel, where 1,400 Israelis lost their lives and over 200 people were taken hostage by the evil terrorist organization Hamas. It was brutality and carnage on a level even those of us who have kind of grown callous to all the murder and, and evil in our culture and society, it shocked even us. There was the sense of how could anyone do that? It was so shocking. And yes, the conflict between Palestine and Israel has a long and complicated history, but there was the sense of, hey, this is out of bounds. This is over the line. This is evil. This is wicked. Full stop, right? And yet, and yet, there were those who would say otherwise. 
Maybe not, not as shocking, but close to as shocking is the response of some that we saw in our society. We saw massive amounts of protests in cities throughout our country and the world. We saw protests on college campuses blaming Israel for the attack. And, and, and there was this sense of, wait, wait, what? <laughs> I mean, can't we just agree that killing babies is wrong? Like, can't we just agree there are some things that are just evil and wicked? And so, look, I'm, I'm not trying to make some sort of political statement about Israel and Palestine and all that is going on there. It's a complicated thing, a lot of history. But, but, there is a dark calculus, a dark moral calculus that is taking place in our culture right now. There is a dark calculus that where we can see outright brutality and evil and murder, and some of us can champion it and justify it, you know your culture has gone to a dark place. There is a dark moral justification that is happening in our society we as a culture, we as a culture, have grown far too comfortable in some ways with murder. We have grown comfortable to where we find ourselves justifying and dismissing things that should be obviously wrong. And so ours is a culture that if your activity supports my sort of political beliefs, then, then I may dismiss your brutality. And like, oh, I'll minimize it. Or I'll say, oh, well, well, here's the reasons why they did that. Ours is also a culture that will justify millions of babies aborted. It will justify it and say, well, there's this reason, this reason, and this reason, and we've become cold and callous to the fact that babies are killed in an alarming number every year. Praise God for the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and there's changes in our culture, but there's still a reality that we've grown comfortable with that. Ours is a society that is the one that we, it seems like every other week, mass shooting. There was one that took place in Maine during all this other stuff happening in the Middle East, and we kind of just shrugged our shoulders and go, oh yeah, there we go again. And again, I'm not making a political statement about the Second Amendment one way or another. I'm just saying that's our reality. This is our culture. We also are becoming increasingly okay with the logic of medical-assisted suicide. The thing that's rocking Canada and is taking place in Canada, it's headed our way sooner rather than later. So understand our culture is in a dark place. There is a dark moral calculus taking place, and into that darkness comes God's word saying, do not murder. The light of God's word comes to us and calls us to something else. And so this morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus and we've been looking closely at the Ten Commandments. And here we are in the Sixth Commandment, which within the structure of the Ten Commandments, this is the second love others command. We saw last week it, the sort of love others section started with honor your father and mother, and the second one here is do not murder. This commandment calls us to value and honor and uphold life. The Hebrew word here translated murder, or you'll see kill in some translations, has in view unauthorized killing. Killing that is for selfish and self-centered ends. So this is not a prohibition against all killing. It's not a prohibition against killing in self-defense or is legal punishment handed down by the state or in cases of just war. Scripture gives allowance for these things. We see this even later in the book of Exodus where God gives allowance for self-defense or he sets in place a system of capital punishment and at times his people were called to go to war that involved killing an enemy. However, we are not to kill for fun. 
We are not to kill for power or for revenge. We are not to take our own lives. We are to uphold life, to honor it, to cherish it, to protect it. We are to be pro-life with purpose. And so from the sixth commandment, here's the truth that we are led to this morning. We cherish the gift of life by loving those made in God's image. We cherish the gift of life by loving those made in God's image. So let's unpack this main idea. Now, what's interesting is that even though our culture is comfortable with murder in some ways, you will still also see outrage against it at times. At times, people will call it out and and they will say, hey, that is wrong. We should not kill people in those instances. And typically, what is appealed to for the justification that is personal autonomy. Like, I don't have a right to kill somebody because I don't have a right to violate someone's personal autonomy. And there is some truth to that. However, however, that justification does not go deep enough. God's word actually takes us deeper in meaning to show us why murder is wrong. There is a deeper and more profound reason than just personal autonomy, according to Scripture. And so as we have done often in our study of the Ten Commandments, we need to rewind back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis 1, we read the story of creation. We read that God made the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless. It had not formed and it was void, meaning it was empty. It had not been filled yet. So there is this chaos. There's this uncreated matter. There is this sense where things have not been put into order. And then there is a symphony of creation, God speaking, God making. And so there is light and there's sound and there's color and there are shapes. And we get skies and we get ocean and we get land and we get plants and we get sun and moon and we get insects and birds and fish and animals. God making, God creating. And there's this beautiful rhythm of Genesis 1. God speaks, God makes, God calls it good. Day one, day two, day three this rhythmic movement. But then the symphony slows down on day six. The rhythm slows down to draw our attention to something profoundly important. Hey, something is happening here that is important. The crown of creation is about to be placed. And here's what we read in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And so out of all the wonders of creation, and there are many wonders, humans, men and women, sit at the crown, at the pinnacle. We are unique and distinct, and we've been given rule over all of creation. Why? Because we have been made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. This is who we are. This is the essence of our being. Listen, the image of God isn't some like little separate distinct part of you that you can sort of like pull out from the rest of you. No, you are body and soul, the image of God. That is the essence of your being. Your entirety is the image of God. We don't have the image of God. We are the image of God. And so there's several things that we take away from this profound moment in creation, this this crowning achievement of creation, the, the profound meaning it has for us as those who are made in the image of God, and what it says and how it gives us an understanding of why we are not to murder. Here's the first reason. We do not murder because life is a gift. 
Life is a gift. We saw this last week. Like, look, you're not here because of an act of your own will. You did not make you. Humanly speaking, your parents made you, but ultimately speaking, you are here because God gave you the gift of life. It is the most precious of gifts. He has given you life. It is a gift given to you. And listen, when somebody gives you a great and precious gift, what is the right way to honor that gift? You cherish it. You take care of it. You protect it. You don't take the gift and you don't damage and destroy it. To damage and destroy a precious gift given to you, that's the height of dishonor. That is the height of dishonoring the person who gave you that gift. And so when you're given a precious gift, we cherish it, we protect it, we honor it. Also, we use it as it intended, is intended to be used. Like, if, if someone gave me a nice shirt and I just stuck it in my closet and left it there and never wore it, and I was like, well, I don't want it to get damaged and dirty, but I never wore it, am I honoring that gift? Sounds like it, but no. Why? Because I'm not wearing it. I'm not actually using it as it was intended to be given. And so, listen, life is meant to be lived. Life is not this thing where we hide away all self-protective and scared. God gave us a life to live it to his glory, to actually engage. Yes, life is tough. Life is hard. There's mess. There's all of that. But we are meant to live life. That's how we honor and cherish life, by living it. So we honor and we cherish the gift that we have been given. And also we recognize Life has been given to others, and we do not damage or destroy the gift that has been given to someone else. Like, listen, if somebody gave you a precious thingamabob, do you know thingamabob is actually a word? Like, I, I typed this in my sermon manuscript, and it didn't autocorrect or put the little red squiggly light. I'm like, oh, that's actually a word. So anyway, sorry. But let's say someone gives you a thingamabob, and, and it is precious to you, and you show that to somebody, and they look at it, and they go, oh, whatever, boom, boom. Is that honoring? <laughs> no, that is dishonoring to the person who received the gift, and it is dishonoring to the person who gave the gift. And so, friends, we don't murder. We don't take the life of someone else because that is a gift that has been given to someone else by God. For us to murder is not only to dishonor the person, it's to dishonor the giver. So we do not murder because life is precious. Life is a gift. Conversely, we cherish life. We love those who have been made in God's image by honoring and cherishing and protecting their life. Second, we do not murder. We, we, we honor and cherish life because we are made in the image of God. So on my, on my desk at home, in my home office, I have a picture of my wife, Mindy. It's my favorite picture of her. So it was taken when, when we were dating. She's got a big smile on her face, and just like all her personality comes out in this picture. I just, I love it so much. It's like the picture I carried around when we were dating, and I'd show my friends, like, look how beautiful my girlfriend is. And I'd feel so proud of myself. <laughs> but I, I, I love that picture because it reflects, in many ways, the glory and the greatness of the person who's in the picture. And yes, technically speaking, it's just a piece of paper but the image of the person who's imprinted on that piece of paper makes it one of my most cherished possessions. Like, I love that picture of my wife. And so listen, you and I, yeah, if you break it all down, we've, we're made of dirt. Like, that's also in Genesis 1. Like, God formed us from the ground. We're dirt. We're made of 
chemicals and compounds that, that aren't unique in, in our world. Like, if you really want to just get to the raw, bare bones of it, we, we're dirtbags. <laughs> we, are, we are dirtbags. <laughs> but listen, we have also, we have been fearfully and we have been wonderfully made and we have been stamped with divine glory because we are made in the image of God. We are God's image bearers. As crazy as that is, that God would take dirt bags and he would stamp them, us, with his image. That is who you are. You are an image bearer. And because of that, you have profound value and worth because you are made in the image of God. And so listen, don't sell yourself short. Don't cheapen yourself with personal autonomy. Like that is a cheap knockoff. Like, our, our society, like, we're drunk on personal autonomy. Like, we're drunk on it. Like, we are drunk on self-definition and, and, and sort of living life on our own terms. And, and we, we, we there, it's not an exaggeration to say, like, we have made ourselves little gods, and we have, like, this overinflated sense of self. Like, you know those ginormous gorillas that are out in front of, like, firework stands in, during the 4th of July? Like, that, that's our egos. Like, that is what we have done, an overly inflated sense of self. That's what personal autonomy has done. But here's the irony in all that. As we have overinflated ourselves, as we have given ourselves to personal autonomy, we've actually cheapened ourselves. We've cheapened our worth. We've cheapened our value because now what is our value based in? What can I accomplish? What can I do? Whether or not I feel good about myself, the image that people have of me, like, we have now found value and worth based on these fast and fleeting subjective realities. We, we've lost the anchor of our worth. We're no longer anchored in something transcendent and true, but only what we can create. And we aren't good at it. We're constantly shifting and fighting and striving. The people are anxious and angry, and there's this, this, this sense of, like, I've got to create this sense of worth for me. And it's like doing this, trying to grab a gnat, when we've chased a personal autonomy, we've actually cheapened our worth and our value, and you can see it in the way we treat ourselves and treat other people. So don't settle for the cheap imitation of personal autonomy. You've been made in the image of God. You have worth and value because God has made you in his image. You're the image of the king. That's why we don't murder, because we have been made in the image of God, and to do violence to ourselves, to do murder is to do violence against God himself. Because when you attack an image, you are attacking the thing that that image is made in. So when I was in junior high and high school, we had these things called yearbooks. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> they, they were actually like physical photo albums. You know, before photo album was an app on your phone, we, we actually had these physical books that you had pictures in. And so anyway, I, I was going through uh, some stuff in our closet recently, and I came across my, my ninth grade yearbook. And, and as I was thumbing through it, I noticed that there were these little funny pictures and little sayings next to people's pictures. And, and so just in case you're curious about what freshman Chris looked like, um, there we go. Um, <laughs> Don't, don't judge me. The 90s were a wild time, I'm telling you. Um, but you can actually see above my, above my head there, there's a little mark because somebody like, made a little comment by my picture too. But apparently my brother and one of his friends got into my yearbook. But, but I also remember doing this with, with my, one of my friends who lived next door. We were going through the yearbook. She was a year ahead of me. And we were just like 
making sarcastic comments and drawing little pictures next to people that, and nothing like vulgar or outright mean, but definitely disrespectful. Definitely wasn't kind. What we were doing is we were attacking the person by attacking their image, by diminishing their image. And that's what murder is. Murder is an attack on God himself by attacking his image. The thing he has given worth by stamping his very image on to attack another person, to murder another person, make no mistake, is to attack God. And we see this in Genesis 9-6. This is actually the, the prohibition against murder in the Ten Commandments. It's not the first time God gave this prohibition. In Genesis 9-6, here's what we read. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. Right there, God makes it very clear. Why do you not kill? Why do you not shed the blood of another? Because humans are made in my image. And it is such a big deal that if you violate that, you will lose your life. You forfeit your life. It is a big deal because to murder, to attack the image of God is to attack him. And so we do not murder, we honor and cherish life because life is a gift and we are made in the image of God. And so that our culture undermines both of these truths, it's not hard to see why we have become so comfortable with murder. If life is not a gift given to me, but it's just the result of chance and maybe evolutionary processes, then life isn't something that I am to steward to honor the gift that has been given to me, but something I can do as I choose. In other people's lives, they're not gifts that I ought to respect, but they're just means to my ends. If my worth is not rooted in being an image bearer of God, but in personal autonomy and self-definition and self-made happiness, well, then anyone who threatens that is an enemy. And I can do whatever I need to do to defeat that threat and remove that threat. Baby going to be an inconvenience? Abort it. Resentment towards others? Well, let me go shoot up a school or shoot up my office space. Oppressors in the way of my rights? Well, then let's violently oppose and overthrow them. Life too painful and hard? Well, let me end it. Listen, is it no wonder that our ethic of personal autonomy has not made us less murderous, but more murderous? When self is king, it does not cause us to honor and cherish life. It doesn't raise up the value of life. It doesn't lead us to love other people. No, it leads us to a murderous, self-centered, pride-centered view. And it has devastating and damaging effects. And we can see it all over the place in our culture. Now, you may be thinking, as Eric highlighted earlier, Chris, I have never murdered anyone. And I want to say congratulations. I'm glad. I'm happy for you. You've never murdered anyone. That is good. That's not something that you, that you want to do. And you also may say, hey, look, Yes, there are mass shootings are horrible, but, but they actually, on a whole, are relatively rare. And, and as bad as it has to have people in our country justifying those terrorist acts, those people aren't actually going out and being terrorists themselves. And so there's a sense in which, hey, look, there, there, there's a lot of kind of philosophical violence or theoretical violence, but not actual violence. And it's like, hey, I'm thankful for that, 100%. And I acknowledge that. That, 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 
there isn't more murder and more violence taking place in spite of what is happening sort of culturally and ethically uh, in our society. I'm grateful for that. But however, that doesn't let us off the hook. We're not off the hook. For the sickness, it runs deeper than just physical acts of murder. Jesus takes the problem and presses it much deeper. In Matthew 5, Jesus declares, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, You fool, will be subject to hellfire. You don't murder? Great. But how are you doing with your anger? Jesus doesn't let us off the hook. He wants us to see that the problem is deeper than just physical acts of violence. We may not physically attack and kill somebody, but we can still be guilty of a type of murder by how we harm others with our anger. We can still be destructive. Because think about this. What, what is murder? Like murder, is, it's the damaging, it's the, the destroying, the taking of life for my personal pleasure and gain. It's the ultimate exercise of power where I take your life to benefit me and my agenda. It is also an exercise of pure hatred of who you are and how you stand in my way. Well, what is anger? Is not anger the lashing out at others, the inflicting of pain for my personal gain? Is not anger an exercise of power in order to control you for my benefit and my agenda? Is not anger an exercise in hatred of who a person is and how they stand in our way? Like it's a different manifestation, but it's the same root. And so listen, friends, is it no wonder our culture has become increasingly comfortable with violence as we've been given more and more over to anger? That is something that, that runs even more rampant than um, shootings and abortion and terrorist acts. We see anger. It's almost ubiquitous. It's almost like this default position that we have in our country. There's so many avenues for ranting and raging. There's so much acceptance, even celebration of anger and tearing down others that we see as a threat. Listen, we're a murderous society because we're an angry society. But destructive anger, look, it's not just a problem out there. It's not just a problem on the TV or in the social media feeds. It's very much an in-here problem because it lives in our own hearts and does damage in our own lives. And this is where we need to be honest. This is where we got to stop deflecting. You know, we've, we've thought about murder and some of the ways it happens in our world and our culture, and maybe we've kept a safe distance somewhat, but now we, we've got to be honest and we've got to let this come up close. Like, how is your anger affecting your relationships? How is your anger harming and damaging or outright destroying your relationships with your spouse or with your kids or with family and friends or people in the church or people in your workplace or neighbors? Are you murdering other people with your anger? How, how are you not honoring the gift of life by doing damage to others with your anger? How are you attacking the image of God with your anger. Because here's the reality, friends. We can be morally, we can be religiously, we can be politically pro-life and still be murderers in our heart. 
Like being pro-life with purpose is more than just a political platform. It is a heart condition about how we live and how we treat other people. If we're tearing others down in our anger, we're not truly pro-life. We're not truly honoring and cherishing and protecting life. Yes, we're not killing people physically, but we are killing people emotionally, spiritually, and relationally. So being pro-life with purpose means we oppose not only physical killing, but also sinful anger at the root of murder. Being pro-life with purpose means we cherish the gift of life by loving those who are made in God's image. This is what the sixth commandment holds out for us and challenges us. So what does this look like practically? I want to give you four things briefly to consider. What does it look like to build a pro-life with purpose culture at First City Church? First, we have to kill anger. We have to kill anger. To be pro-life with purpose, to fully keep the sixth commandment, we have to kill our anger. And listen, this isn't something we do with behavior modification. Yeah, stress relief, deep breathing, exercise, whatever, you know, physical things that we can do to help us with stress, those are all great things. But understand that the root of anger is a heart problem. If we're going to kill it, we have to deal with it at the root. We have to deal with it at the level of the problem. And what is at the heart of anger? Idolatry, pride. This, this putting self as king, where I am God and everything else needs to get on my agenda. I'm the one who controls my life and everyone needs to follow my lead and what I want. And if you get in the way, if you oppose it, you will meet my wrath. Pride. Idolatry, putting ourselves in the place of God. And we've all done it. We've all done it. We've all been guilty of this. This goes all the way back to the first commandment. We murder, we get angry because we've taken God off the throne and put ourselves on the throne. So if we're going to deal with our anger, we need to reorient who we are worshiping. The sixth commandment and all the commandments down, loving others, it all starts with the first one. And so, friends, We need to take ourselves off the throne and we need to reorient our hearts towards worship. But here, again, is a problem. In and of ourselves, we cannot do this. In and of ourselves, we are slaves to our sin. We are locked into our idolatry, but this is where the goodness of the gospel comes. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to us, that while we were idolaters, while we were angry, hateful people, while we were rebelling against God and harming and hurting other people, God sends Jesus into the world and Jesus loves us He keeps God's commandments and he lays down his life as a punishment and to take the penalty of our sin. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that no matter how angry you've been, no matter how wicked you have been, even if you have been a murderer, Jesus forgives. Jesus cleanses. Jesus sets free. Just open the Bible and take a look at those that God rescued and redeemed who were once murderers. The Apostle Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament, was a murderer. He killed Christians, and yet God radically rescued and redeemed him. So it does not matter what you've done. Don't sit here thinking, well, I have actually killed people. I've, I've destroyed people. I've ru- wrecked and ruined people. There's no way God can save me. Oh, yes, he can. There is not a pit that Jesus' grace will not meet you in and cannot rescue from. 
And so, friends, the goodness of the gospel here, the hope of the gospel here is we can be forgiven for the ways that we have wrecked and ruined other people, the ways we have been murderous in our hearts, and that we can be transformed now not to worship ourselves, but to worship the Lord. And so we need God to kill our anger, but we also need to actively kill our anger. We need to purposefully make those decisions of, I am not going to be king of my life. I am not going to put myself on the throne. I am going to humble myself before God and walk in humility. And so we kill our anger through the power of the gospel by worshiping and being reoriented to the Lord and him and his kingship. Second, we champion righteousness. We champion righteousness because here is the reality, friends. Our world is full of evil that is, reckoning, is wrecking and ruining other people. Righteousness brings life. Righteousness brings healing. Righteousness brings wholeness. The, the good news of, of the life that God holds out for us in the Ten Commandments is a life of righteousness and a life of goodness. But there is a world that is wrecking and ruining people. There are people who are harming others doing destructive things to others. And so us as Christians, us who stand for righteousness, we are called to champion righteousness in our world. And so we champion righteousness by how we vote. Like you should vote. You should be politically engaged. You should care about the laws that are passed in our country. You should hope that those laws are righteous and they protect and uphold life. And so we're active politically. But we're also being prophetic in our words. And I want to be I want to be clear here, I want to be clear here, because sometimes this gets, gets a little wonky and we, we can uh, kind of take political agendas and attach them onto um, God's word and, and kind of start to couch political agendas around religious language. Listen, we proclaim God's word, not political platforms. We proclaim the counsel of God, not the counsel of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. But understand that in proclaiming the counsel of God, there are going to be those things that we call out and we say these things are not right. And I'm not trying to both sides this. I'm just saying they're going to be things that we have to call out and we call them out because they're based in God's word. And so we are prophetic to our culture based on what God's word says. And so we're calling people to righteousness. We're calling out evil when we see it. And so we are championing righteousness in the words that we speak, the arguments that we make. We we say, this is wrong, this is wicked, and this is why. This is what God's word says. This is why God's word holds out something better. So we champion righteousness in our culture. We're being a force for good in how we live. And we're also championing righteousness by building a culture of righteousness here at First City Church. Like we are killing anger in our own lives. We are are cultivating love for other people. We are uh, building a culture of mercy and forgiveness. We're, We're loving and serving one another. There's a sense when people come here to First City Church, it's not anger and, and, and sort of competition that they're experiencing, but no, it's love for one another, care for one another, forgiving one another, showing mercy and grace to one another. We're building a culture of righteousness here at First City so when people who've been wrecked and ruined by our world come here, they see the power of the gospel and the hope that is in Christ. So we champion righteousness by building a righteous culture here and then shining the light of Christ into our world. Third, We care for others. Listen, evil likes to prey on those who are weak and vulnerable. It wants to destroy those who feel desperate and feel like they have no other option. And so you see this play out so much in situations of abortion and suicide. 
Like so many women find themselves in desperate circumstances. Yes, there are some that just do it for convenience, but there are so many that find themselves desperate and they don't think they have any other options and the lies of our culture tell them, yeah, just get rid of that problem. And us as the church, we're called to love people right where they are and say, hey, not only do I want to call you to choose life for your baby, but I also want to love you. And there is a group of people who are going to care for you and you aren't alone. And so church, we care for those in vulnerable positions. And don't listen to the lie of the culture as if the church only cares about babies before they're born. That's not true. The church is one of the best at caring for people that are hurting and vulnerable. Listen, do not listen to that lie. If you don't believe me, come have a conversation. I can show you the research. It's pretty clear, pretty obvious. So here's what this is. This is less a correction church, and this is more keep doing it. And I know so many of you in this church have done that. Keep at it. Keep loving and caring for people that are vulnerable, whether women in situations where they're concerned about abortion or those that that feel like they can't go on in life. And I know that is the story of some of you in this room, and I know there's how suicide has affected some people on your family, and it is a devastating reality. And people that are in those situations can feel so desperate, like there's nothing else that can be done. And so this is where we can step in and love people and be present with people, give them hope. We care for people. We're not just yelling at the darkness. We're going to people and meeting them in the midst of the darkness and holding out the hope of the gospel. We're loving people. We're meeting needs. We're showing the tangible love of Christ. So we kill anger. We champion righteousness. We care for others. And finally, we cultivate hope and joy. Listen, anger not only expresses itself in selfishness, it can sometimes express itself in desperation and cynicism. And if we're going to enter into this world of darkness, if we're going to champion righteousness, if we're going to care for people in very difficult situations, it's pretty easy at times to get angry. And listen, sometimes we should get angry. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 tells us this, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Listen, sometimes we should be angry at things. There are bad things happening and that should provoke a righteous anger in us. But what keeps us from crossing over into the line of cynicism and sinful anger, where it becomes prideful and self-centered, what keeps us from letting the sun go down on our anger and but instead dealing with it and not letting it fester and stew in our mind and our hearts, like if we're going to do that, if we're not going to let Satan get a foothold in our lives, even as we pursue righteousness, we need to cultivate hope and joy. We need to, be, we need to have our eyes up to see the power of the gospel and to see that Jesus Christ is the resurrected and reigning king. Like one of the things that I have learned, because anger is definitely something I struggle with, I burn cold, but I I definitely struggle with anger. But one of the things that I have learned in dealing with anger is that if I am able, in the midst of challenging circumstances, in the midst of dealing with my own sin or the sin of other people, in the midst of pain and suffering and and just the, the difficulties of this world, if I am able to keep my eyes on hope, if I'm able to see that God is at work, if I'm able to see that Jesus Christ is the resurrected and reigning king and the power of the gospel is going forward and he's coming back and he's going to renew and restore all things and he's at work in this world in the life of the person that's right in front of me, if I have that in front of me and I walk in hope, then anger can take, can, can pff, gone, 
get out of here. <laughs> I can be angry appropriately, but I can all, that anger can be replaced by hope. And so church, we need to cultivate hope and joy. And we do that by washing our minds and our hearts in the truth of the gospel. We wash our minds and our hearts in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and that he is coming back. We wash our minds and our hearts in the truth that the Holy Spirit has been given to us and the Holy Spirit is at work in us and through us. We are never hopeless. We are never without power. We don't have to try to control and manipulate through anger. Rather, we can trust the Lord and depend upon his power. And so, church, go into this world. Champion righteousness. Go in and care for people in their most broken, in their deepest, darkest needs. Go in there because Jesus has called you but go in there with hope, go in there with joy. Not artificial hope, not artificial joy, not um, trying to gin up emotions to sort of deny the pain, no, but hope in the power of Christ. Hope in what Jesus has done. If we do that, if we cultivate hope and joy, then we will not give place to sinful anger. We can build a truly pro-life culture with purpose. And so church, in light of all all of who God is in light of the gift that he has given us of life and the gift of new life that he has given us. In light of the call to take the gospel to our world, in light of the call to take righteousness into our world and confront the evil that will wreck and ruin and destroy other people, in light of the hope that we have that Jesus has come and is coming, Let's be pro-life with purpose. Let's cherish life by loving those who've been made in the image of God. Amen? Let's pray.